Recovery Elevator, episode 399. My mental health, I, it was not resolved. It was not even talked about. It, I needed something like as a crutch. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix four. down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki wiki mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki wiki mix down. There we go. Three, four. Wiki wiki. wiki, wiki. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with y'all today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Zeta. She's 31 years old from St. Paul, Minnesota, and took her last drink on November 27th, 2021. Great job, Zeta. Listeners, I want to put this on your radar. We've got Restore, which is our intensive dry January course, which starts January 1st, and we meet 14 times in January. The sessions are Sunday, Monday, and Thursday. Now, I do feel today is the very best day to quit drinking, but if you do have that New Year's resolution in mind or that feels like a good time for you, then join us for our Restore course. Registrations opens up December 1st. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. And before we get any further today, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Cafe RE almost immediately after I found it, and I was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things I quickly realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community. People all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, especially when I came across bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $24 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner if you request to be matched, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 10% of monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to meet you there. What's up, Cafe Ari chat hosts? Thank you so much for what you do. Okay, let's get started. We strive to keep this podcast real, authentic, and we want to give you an accurate snapshot of what quitting drinking and what an alcohol-free life looks like or can look like. Yes, an alcohol-free life is overall better than drinking, much better in my opinion. But the key word there is overall. As in, if you were to graph or chart the overall ups and downs for a month of drinking versus a month of sobriety, listeners, I can almost guarantee you sobriety is going to come out as a much better month. Yes, the alcohol is a wonderful depressant or numbing agent, but what goes up must come down. Or in this case, what goes down, you, or is being depressed, you, doesn't quite snap back to its original state. With every binge or abundant night of drinking, your body learns alcohol. 
as in it learns to function with it, opposed to without it. This learning is progressive. Then the body, the nervous system, your dopamine system, begin to crave alcohol for normal functioning. Yes, a sober life is more enjoyable than a life with alcohol. That is, if you have a drinking problem, of course. But quitting drinking can be a challenge. Again, I'm not going to bullshit you here. Quitting drinking was the hardest thing I've ever done, and it's still a work in progress. But on the flip side, it's the best decision I've ever made without a doubt. Quitting drinking is the one domino that has the capacity to affect or knock over all the other dominoes in your life. Now, did I mention quitting drinking is hard? Hang on, let me scroll up in my notes. Uh, yep, there it is, two times. Okay. Okay, so what's the hardest part about quitting drinking? Are you ready for it, listeners? Here it comes. The hardest part about quitting drinking is the brain freeze from ice cream. I'm kidding. Although you're going to and should experience more brain freeze and sobriety as in treat yourself to a lot of ice cream. All right, let's get back to it. What's the hardest part about quitting drinking? Now for show purposes, I'm trying to build up suspense and hype. So, well, let's just get into it. Here we go. The hardest part about quitting drinking is to not quit drinking. Now, I think a chunk of listeners right now are saying, come on, Paul, <laughs> and that's okay, but stick with me. Yes, the hardest thing I've ever done is quitting drinking, but that's not fully accurate. Before quitting drinking, the hardest thing I've ever done was to continue down the path of active addiction, which is full of yets that increase with intensity and pain as the drinking continues. Now, when I say yets, here's what I mean. I haven't had a DUI yet or lost a job yet, lost a significant relationship yet, or a house, or financials yet. All of those yets we haven't hit, keyword, yet. And we tell ourselves we haven't hit these things yet, mostly to keep the drinking alive. But if we keep drinking, eventually all those yets will come true. Again, the hardest part about quitting drinking is not doing anything about it. It's letting the disease, the unease, the illness, the energetic vortex, the adaptive behaviors, whatever you want to call it, letting it progress into more painful territory, which is the hardest part about alcohol addiction. In reality, the quitting part is the path of least resistance, which I cover in episode 384. I really like that episode. Now, what's the hardest part about you quitting drinking for your family members or significant others? Well, it's the same thing. The hardest part for them is you not quitting drinking also. So outside looking in, watching a loved one slowly kill themselves one bottle of wine or whiskey at a time is excruciating for all parties involved. Now, despite what the Bruno voice is telling you in your mind, quitting drinking isn't the hardest part. It's ignoring the deeper voice inside of you, which is telling you it's time to quit, which is really going to punch you in the goat blocks down the road, as in a direct hit. So hopefully, listeners, I've planted a seed that not quitting drinking is harder than quitting drinking. And to drive this idea home, maybe do an old-fashioned pro and con sheet. I've actually found these to be quite helpful over the years. So in one column on the left, continue drinking. The other column on the right, sobriety, an alcohol-free life. I think only 10 minutes of this, and you'll see clearly which of the two is more difficult or is the more strenuous pathway ahead. Oh yeah, and don't forget to add unexpected, disastrous rock bottoms to the continue drinking column. So what we don't grasp in the quitting drinking equation is dealing with the increasingly more difficult rock bottoms if we don't quit drinking. 
For example, and I know this may be extreme, but it's a possibility, what's harder? Quitting drinking or dealing with a DUI where you hurt or possibly kill someone else with your car? Now, what's harder? Quitting drinking or losing your family? What's harder? Quitting drinking or living on the streets or spending a significant time in jail? What's harder? Quitting drinking or spending most of your paycheck or all of your paycheck on booze, leaving nothing left over to live? So I think you all get the point. And I do recognize scare tactics like this don't really work. Well, at least in the long run. So what does work is focusing on the opportunity you have ahead of you in sobriety to really address the title of this podcast episode. Maybe the hardest part about quitting drinking is making this monumental life change without the ability to accurately see what's on the other side. I don't think it's the withdrawals, learning how to cope without alcohol, telling your friends now that you're healthy, that just sounds weird to say, or attending AA. I don't think that's the hardest part. I think the hardest part is entering the unknown where infinite possibilities exist. And yes, it's true. Infinite possibilities do exist if you continue drinking, but those aren't the possibilities of a better life, and one of those possibilities is a liver transplant. Okay, let's throw another wrinkle in, like addiction wasn't confusing enough already. Sometimes the hardest part about quitting drinking is quitting drinking without a rock-bottom moment. Huh. So ask yourself this, listeners. Is the emotional and physical pain you've already experienced enough to quit drinking? I do believe that rock-bottom moments serve a purpose. They are the tipping points that force us into sobriety. I'm also a believer that we can put down the shovel or stop digging whenever we want. That's a tagline in the rooms of AA. Uh, And a tagline that you sometimes hear uh, on this podcast in the outro is, you took the elevator down, you can take the stairs back up. You can get off the elevator at any time. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this intro. And it was a little bit of a bait and switch with the title, I get that. But I do think the hardest part about quitting drinking or the more difficult alternative is to not quit drinking. Okay, and now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Zeta. Life can be overwhelming, and no matter who we are, problems are guaranteed to arise. For me, sometimes when new problems come up, I feel a bit paralyzed. It's important to assess situations and to talk to people I trust when it comes to finding solutions. I've gone from thinking I have to figure it out all on my own to asking for help when it comes to problem-solving mode. There's no better feeling than finding solutions and gaining confidence through problem-solving. A therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. Therapy has always been important to me because I need someone who can catch my blind spots and be clear with me. Someone who can see things that perhaps I'm not catching, and someone that can give me professional feedback without me feeling hurt or judged. We take such good care of our bodies. The mind should be no different. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapist anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash elevator. Zita, how are you? I am good. How are you? Zita, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for asking. I'm really happy to be here with you on the podcast. Let's get right into this, Zita. When was your last drink? 
Uh, November 27th of 2021. November 27th, 2021. Fantastic work. And Zita, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from. What do you do for a living? Your age? Do you have a family? And what do you like to do for fun? Yep. So I am 31 years old, Gemini. I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota. All right. Um, I'm an ICU RN at um, a hospital close to my city. I'm not married. I don't have kids. And I'm currently looking to go back to school to be a nurse practitioner. And I love to eat too much. I love to cook. I love to travel, love to rollerblade. I love to work out. I got my certificate to be a personal trainer. I love to get my nails done, um, go to the movies. Cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When you do go out and eat, where, where do you go? What's your favorite type of food? Barbecue, pork, pulled pork, any kind of pork. <laughs> yeah. When I was in college, eat, I worked at a Southern restaurant. I was going to college in Southern California, worked at a Southern restaurant where I'd wear a bolo. I had to wear a shirt with snap buttons. And that was my first exposure to St. Louis ribs, uh, black eyed peas, all all the barbecue stuff from the South. This whole world of cuisine opened up for me. You could throw your peanuts on the floor. I absolutely loved it. Let's talk about rollerblading for a second. (laughs) I feel like there's a very slow emergence because when rollerblades first hit the the scene, I think in early nineties, it was like, wow, this is it. I had the same feeling when I drank alcohol as well, but um, they kind of went away for a bit, but are you, are you getting into rollerblading? Is this a new thing for you? No, I've always, for some reason, I just was really good at it. Even when I was younger, it just, for me, it's really easy to do. It's fun. A good way to get exercise. I love to do it around the lake scenery and it's just and I hate walking so it's a way to kind of see things and going fast at the same time sure so I just got recently got new ones I had the ones from like the 90s that snapped off on me when I was rollerblading so I got like the new ones and yeah I just that's one of the ways I love to just and if it's not running then rollerblading just to ease my mind yeah 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 wheels on the feet human beings have had a Mm. lot of inventions I'm going to put rollerblades right up there maybe behind climate control and air conditioning <laughs> All right, Zita, let's get into this. When did you, when did you take your first drink? You're 31 years old right now. So probably 15 or 16. I can remember exactly when I did it too. And it was just one of those experiments, you know, you're with friends and like, try this shot. And yeah. So like 15 years ago. Sure. Sure. Was there a time in your life, Zita, after that, where you were a normal drinker where alcohol oh, yeah. wasn't taking you down a, down a bad path. Okay. Tell For us about sure. that. Yeah. So it was definitely during college. So 2009 to 2013, I was in college, you know, drinking normally, I would say going out Thursday, Friday, Saturday, not affected at all. And looking back, the amount I drank was a lot, but it never once affected schoolwork. I graduated, you know, top of kind of top of the class, but I was very on top of it while drinking too. Sure. Okay. And then, so you, you didn't affect your schoolwork, you got through college and, uh, what happens with your relationship with alcohol after that in your early twenties? Yeah. So I got really confused after college. So 2013, 2014, got the nursing job where I'm still at now, still fine. And then between 2017 and 18, something mentally switched. I don't know now knowing uh, my diagnosis of PTSD. In 2013, I just suffered with anxiety, undiagnosed anxiety. And I wasn't sure what that feeling was. I didn't know what was going on. Was really 2013, thinking- was that your last year of college? Yes. Oh, okay. 
talk to us about that anxiety. When you said undiagnosed anxiety, you don't know what it was. Um, tell us about that. Yeah. What I noticed was fear of people, which for me was confusing because I loved being around people. And I remember I was studying at a table and one of my friends came over and I'm like, whoa, kind of like get away. It just was so overwhelming. And then somebody told me there was a counselor in college. That's where I started learning like therapies for that. And then I went and talked to her because I was like, I don't know why I have to hide from people. That's when I remember the hiding, avoiding. And then I didn't think much of it either. I'm like, oh, I'll get over that. And I didn't think much of it after that at all. It kind of just went away on its own. I didn't Mm -hmm. do anything special, no meds, no therapy work, just kind of went on and graduated and started life. Sure. Okay. Well, talk to us uh, mid twenties. What happens with alcohol after that? So I started dating my now ex. Everything was again, fine. We went out a lot, (laughs) drank a lot. um, And everything was fine up until the last years of us being together, which I started noting, like noticing that I would need him for my happiness more and more and more. You know, I would ask him to do X, Y, and Z to make me happy. I would ask him to do all these things. Now looking back, it's like he could not have done anything, you know, and then he got overwhelmed. We broke up and that breakup was what actually separated my relationship from alcohol with it being just for fun to like, oh, I can actually use this to cope. I didn't know that, you know, and then from that moment on, I remember specifically when I did it in my kitchen, I'm like, I feel much better. Now we can talk so that my brain just clicked into, all right, we can use this. We have a coping mechanism, whatever you feel, you can just kind of put it aside with using alcohol from then on. My brain has just never switched to it just being for fun anymore. Yeah. Zita, there was the same progression with me. One, when I took my first drink, I think I was 13 or 14. But there was this, wow, what's up, alcohol? Let's let's do this thing called life together. We're going to have fun. It made my jokes better, you know, things like that. But then there was another thing when the pain and stresses of life arrived, there was another relationship that was forged with alcohol that said, yay, this is the shortcut past anxiety or, or, or maybe not even a shortcut. Like this is it. This is uh-huh. the best medicine I've ever tried. So, and there's another there's another commonality on this podcast that I've heard. I've almost done 300 of these interviews and it's, it's when a life stressor happens. It's when my ex and I, we departed It's when, you know, this person left my life when this, when the job, you know, and, and then we forge that relationship with alcohol in the new capacity There's a new relationship that's forged. And it sounds like you used it to cope and, and, you know, and sometimes we beat ourselves up for that. I, and, I, and I encourage listeners for you guys to flip it, you for you to uh, Zeta for you to flip it. And I did myself. It's like, look, living life is hard, especially in this time and age. I found a very applicable medicine that didn't require a prescription and it worked very effective. So talk to us about how you used alcohol to cope. And, and then when did it shift from being this magical elixir with, with infinite capacities and capabilities to something that slowly started to backfire? There's not a specific moment, but I remember when I first used it, I didn't, I think when I first took it, I knew it would help, you know, usually when I drink, I would feel good. So I wasn't in my mind when I first used it, I didn't think like, oh, this would help me with my anxiety. I just thought I needed to get through this hard convo. I used it and it worked. Like I felt so happy. I was relaxed. We had a good convo. We were able to move on. So in my brain, I was like, all right, I can start using this to be lively to actually see my feelings instead of holding it in which before I used to see what I felt for some reason I couldn't anymore so now with alcohol you know I would and I started drinking before you know meeting up with friends and I would be so happy you know just so joyous and 
I remember some of the best memories with me just being open with alcohol and drinking. And, and then when it went South, I can't really remember just everything blurred together after 2018, but I just remember people asking me about drinking. I remember my family coming into my house, my friends, one day when, of course, I was hungover, they came and said, you know, they all said their own situations of when they noticed my drinking was alarming. And at that point, I was I that was when I kind of realized maybe it is a problem. Zita, when a family member or someone in the outside world first came to you about your drinking, what was that feeling that you had? I was so mad. Oh, my goodness. I was, first of all, hungover and I came out of my room thinking I would just, you know, do my regular, probably drink more, probably order food, just go on with how I normally do it. So I walked in and just saw a whole bunch of people in my living room and I was so upset, so off, like caught off guard. I, I yeah, I was very upset. Like it wasn't, it wasn't good. <laughs> okay. If I hear you <laughs> properly, I think the word for that's an intervention in this space. So if I hear you correctly, you woke up, you're hungover, you walked into the main common area of the house, whatnot. Everybody was there, your family members and hello, Zita, this is an intervention. And and when was that again? So that was probably 2018. Okay. And what happened after that? So I was shaking physically because I was hungover and I was mad. And then what happened after that was I actually thought about my drinking. I never really thought about it before. So I thought about what the issue was, you know, did, were they not liking how I was? And in my head, I'm like, well, now I'm finally how you guys want me. Cause now I'm bubbly with alcohol. Now I'm like myself again, like in quotes with alcohol. So I just, there's a lot of confusion. And then I was like, well, maybe I should start slowing down. I never once thought to stop. Like stopping was just not an option only because my mental health, I, it was not resolved. It was not even talked about it. I needed something like as a crutch earlier you said you would drink before you going out with your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, did you notice it at that time? Would, would you show up at a restaurant or a bar and say, Hmm, I wonder if they've also had three to four drinks before showing up at this establishment? Well, not at all. Like, okay. No. Yeah. And then what you just said is you took a look at it. You said, well, what is going on here? What, you know, what is happening? So that sometimes that just doesn't happen. We don't have the awareness until we walk into, yo, what's up Zita? Here's your intervention. And I got a question for you, Zita, with the mental health and the drinking, was it always separate? Was it like, here's anxiety, here's the drinking, or did you connect the dots that they were connected where perhaps the drinking was to appease the mental health issues, the anxiety? That's a good question because that took me a while to figure out which came first. I did a lot of therapy work to figure out how that all happened just because this sobriety thing, this alcohol thing, it just, it's so shocking to me. I know everybody's different, but like, for how disciplined and how I am, I'm just surprised this was even a problem. So I had to dig deep to figure out what happened. And of course, for me, I do have childhood trauma, which all came out probably then 2013. Sure. And listeners, it's not easy to see what the issue is. I recall when I went to a counselor after I think one or two visits, she was like, Hey, Paul, I think alcohol is a problem. Would you consider yourself an alcoholic? Do you think you have a drinking problem? And I was floored by it. Just floored Zita. Where could she possibly come up with this conclusion? Even though I I'd previously told her that I blacked out for almost three years straight in Spain, anxiety, uncontrollable emergency room visits. Of course, alcohol wasn't the problem. So 
you know, that's a tough one for some reason for us to correlate. I think that's mm-hmm. one of the nastiest components uh, of ethanol, of alcohol. And uh, yeah, it's, it does a number on us because our perception is skewed. Now, now, Nazita, after the intervention, I, I got an email from you. I, I think I know what happened. I don't think you, you walked in the intervention and said, all right, good call guys. I'm, 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 I'm quitting. In an email listeners that I got from Zita, she said, I was one of those stubborn people that were convinced nothing could help me stop drinking. I honestly believed I couldn't be helped and told my family and friends to basically move on from me. And and Zita, that's hard to read, um, but I understand it. I've been there before, right? That's such a feeling of hopelessness and loss of control. What was that feeling like for you when you had that? And um, what was it like that to relay that to, to family and friends? It's when you read that, it's hard. It's so true. It's, and I remember the moment I even text my family and friends. I remember each moment I remember so vividly because. You know, it's when you try therapy, when you try to figure out, is it me? Is it, and I've seen other people get help, but why isn't it that when I try therapy, I've done the outpatient program, you know, I've done, um, I forgot what med it was, the medicine you take that if you drink, you get like a stomach ache or something. I've done that med I've done. Yeah. It's probably an abuse and abuse. Yep. I've done the other one that curbed your craving. I've just done so much. And then still nothing was clicking for me to stop. And so I was just wondering, like, maybe there's one person in the world that can't be fixed and it's okay. Then I started saying, it's okay that I'm not, that I can't be fixed. So that the pill that curbs your craving, I think this is called naltrexone. Does that ring a bell for you? That is. Okay. I've heard incredible stories about that, but for you, it, it didn't quite do anything. No, it didn't. It made my stomach upset and it did. It takes away like the, I forgot what receptor, but it makes you not get that, um, like the high of drinking. Yeah. So it did work, but it just started hurting my stomach. So it wasn't worth it for me. Gotcha. And, and after that, you, you, you're trying all these resources, talking with people, the medical world is intervening with, with pills and whatnot, and it's not working. How are you feeling after that? Hopeless. Like it just, for me, I started, cause I knew I had the hunger to stop drinking. I deep down, I was like, what is happening? Like, why am I so weak? Like I've been disciplined in so many areas of my life, you know, nursing, that's hard to get through just so many goals I've accomplished, but this one, for some reason, it just made me feel so weak and hopeless. And that's why I'm like, well, so be it. If this is what it is, then I guess my life will just end. Honestly, I've said death was death and I was okay with it. Sure. Now, now listeners, if you've listened to several episodes of the podcast, perhaps my intros, I kind of flip the narrative, how we view alcohol, how, how we view an addiction. In fact, you know, we've labeled it as, is something malfunction. It's wrong. The war on addiction, the war on drugs. But I think what happens with an addiction, it's the ultimate invitation of self-discovery. Yes. It's challenging. Not everybody makes it, but as you've already said in this interview, Zita, you, 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 you tried to decide what is going on. We ask these questions internally. Sometimes we look up at the stars and the skies or in the ocean, or the mountains, we say, what the F is going on. I, 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 I can't get to the bottom of this. Eventually, eventually do if we stick with it long enough. And I think that's one of the, uh, the, one of the beauties of an addiction is you, you can't fight it. You got to listen to it and work with it and get to know yourself. And, and as the further I get away from alcohol, the more thankful I am for the lessons that the addiction told had taught me the resilience that I have and, and the lessons that I pulled from that, that I can apply to other lessons in my life. And and, and so when did it switch from I'm gone, go, go on without me, society and world, 
um, I'm ready to go. You know, what, what switch, like you had to get some traction somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think what switch was mental health. Like I'm such an advocate for that. Now it's my diagnosis actually of PTSD anxiety. I've been trying to find the right therapist. And I think not having the right one was what, you know, why I didn't have any coping mechanism. I wasn't learning. I wasn't really growing, but what switched was digging deeper into my childhood and trauma work was actually what helped the most, you know? So I stopped actually going to meetings. I stopped my regular path that I thought was helping for my alcohol. I had to, when you say meetings with 12 step meetings, um, women for sobriety. Okay. Gotcha. Yes. So I stopped, I put everything on halt and literally only focused on mental health because I, I think I did it the opposite way where I stopped alcohol, but didn't focus on mental health. So I was left with no coping skills. Sure. And how did you focus on mental health? What did that look like? So I took time off work, which was hard because I love my job. You know, that actually eased my anxiety the most. So out of all the destruction I've done with alcohol work was not once affected, not a single thing happened at work. Wow. But I took time off work. It was a month off. I did DBT training for one month, five days a week, eight hours a day. It was pretty intensive. What's DBT? Uh, Dialectal behavior therapy. Okay. What does that look like for listeners? Yeah. So each day, you know, you come on and tell it's with a group of people that have, you know, several different types of mental illnesses. And then you work with a therapist just to kind of get through your problems by changing the way you view your thoughts, basically. What is a way you can change to view your thoughts? Yeah. So if you're thinking there's coping mechanisms for relationship, you know, your internal thought and crisis management. So for example, one of the things is like riding the wave of your emotions. I think my, in the past, when I had a deep emotions, I thought that emotion would last forever. With this DBT teaches you, there will be a peak. That's the peak wave. It says at some point where that emotion just fizzles out. So that skill is called riding the wave. wave. So DBT just teaches you different skills for each emotion and mindfulness and and to do that, you got to take your eyes from the outside and turn them inward. You got to sit with these emotions that previously, I can speak from my own experience, were, were just a little too much, right? To sit with and you focus on your mental health. Sometimes that just, that means sitting and letting it be and just being with it. Correct? Correct. Yep. And before gotcha. I was fearful of that because I thought it would spiral me into this negative thought, which it had in the past that made me really depressed and made me not want to do anything. Sure. So at this month of intensive focus on your mental health, you started to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I did. And I started to be more open about my feelings. I started to have a glimpse. Like I had more tools other than alcohol, which made stopping easier. Of course I didn't stop and just, that was it until now, but it made it possible. I would say actually, like I wasn't fearful of, Oh, if I stopped, would I not have a coping mechanism? I had many now and I still have my binders and books and everything always at my reach. Sure. And then you, know, what happened in, in November, I think November 27 was your last drink was, was this DBT therapy right before that? No, actually. So the DBT therapy was in March of 2021. Okay. And so that helped. But of course, at that moment too, I still wasn't all in with the like sobriety, you know, I've tried and it didn't work. It wasn't until like, I would say June of 2021 that I knew I just, it wasn't moderating. wasn't, it just had to be stopped. You know, it wasn't 
anything other than I have to stop drinking for my life to go on in a way I want. Yeah. I want to expand that for a moment. And Philip, who, who I interviewed probably eight to 10 episodes ago, he talks about this moment and he calls it the path of least resistance. It's when we recognize moderation sucks. It's painful. It doesn't work for me. And the path of least resistance is just quitting drinking. Mm-hmm. And, and it both sucks when you hit that moment, but it's also the other side is so much better because energy is liberated. It's like, all right, no more energy is going to, how can I moderate this? Keep it in my life. It's got to go. What was it like for you? It was hard. (laughs) Yes. Like I made the choice, but it was hard just because I knew from the past, you know, months one and two, I could easily go through, but months one and two, when I really stopped were really extremely hard because, and I saw an addiction specialist and he, told me month three is when your brain normalizes and all the chemicals are balanced. But to get to month three, I obviously had to go through month two, which was the worst month of my life this time around. Okay. So was that like January this year, 2022? Yeah. Well, how did you keep going through hell? Yeah. So I remember the day that I just felt so overwhelmed. I actually almost relapsed, but I was going to a hockey game with my friend and I just eased into those emotions. And I told her, you know, I told her I was awkward right now because there's so much things going on. I told her, I don't know if we could go to the game. And we just talked for a while. And then I found a coping mechanism of just thinking of how the next day would look like if I did drink. Hmm. I love that. And we call that playing the tape forward here, here at RE. Um, what that is, is yeah. What happens if I drink? You can't, you can't think yourself out of a drink. Um, I'm, I'm, or at least in the long run, but you do have got a great backlog of evidence that, yeah, will I have just one? Am I going to shut it down at the end of the night? How am I going to feel tomorrow? And le- most likely, you know, for me, the last two, 300 times I drank, none of that was on the horizon of responsibly drinking, of, of waking up anxiety free. So, so that worked for you. Yeah, it did. And we had a great time at the game, the wild one and had many donuts and got on with my life. <laughs> When you say many donuts, what does that look like? Two, three? (laughs) Twelve. That's what's up. Go for it, Zeta. For sure. Hey, listeners, it is open season for donuts after you quit drinking. Ice cream, Reese's Pieces, all that. Give yourself a green light pass. Hey, maybe for your first year, two, three, or 20 after you quit drinking, it's really up to you. (laughs) Okay, so there are obviously some hard moments. Those first um, those, and it, you, you said something that surprised me a bit. It's like, yeah, the first couple months were usually easy and then it was hard, but, but for me, it was swapped it. But this time it sounds like those first months were really hard. You made it past the moments you, you, you almost relapsed. You know, what, what were some of the tools that got you through those moments? Many. Now I had many tools because of my mental health being okay. You know, I always, there's podcasts you can listen to. I went back to that and I like the ones that are 10 minutes or less for mental health specifically. I would pop that in. It just switches my mindset pretty much right away. Okay. Gotcha. And, and the thing with those podcasts for me that it, it helped me feel like I wasn't alone. <laughs> you know, that was, that was a big part for me. The worst place that someone with a drinking problem and alcohol can be is alone. And that's where I was for a long time. And even when I quit drinking in 2010, I was just alone. I didn't, I didn't have a community and I was selling myself short. So how has your life changed without alcohol? Now that you're, we're pushing like six to seven months at the time of this recording fan, no, a longer than that. Fantastic job, Zita. How, how do you feel? Um, yeah. Walk us through that. Yeah. I feel 
actually better than how I felt before this alcohol thing was an issue. You know, I always told my therapist, I want to get back to my old self. And, you know, it's like, what is your old self? And now, and my old self was, you know, disciplined and outgoing. And, but what I was lacking was assertiveness and confidence in my old self. And now I have that. I have my boundaries are up, you know, I have values, you know, I've always wanted to go back to school. I remember right when I graduated, my goal, my next goal was um, nurse practitioner that just went off the grid when I was drinking. So now it's going, you know, going into going back to school and my friends and family, I'm so much closer with them. I'm more open with them. I'm real about my emotions, even with, you know, my coworkers, you know, days that are bad. I just, I keep to myself and just say, you know, I'm just silent right now and before I used to overplay my emotions to always seem bubbly and that was a lot of energy that's too much energy Mm. Zita I I like that you said hey when when am I going to go back to the old self well number one it sounds like the old self wasn't open with your coworkers. the old self wasn't uh, honoring your emotions the old self was it was too bubbly I mean you know fake right and and you just said that that takes so much energy not to be the authentic self so so listeners, yes, maybe things, things, some things might, might go back to normal, but there are some things that I never want to go back to normal. And, and, and there's a grieving process with that. And I think COVID helped me grieve with some of this stuff because I quit drinking and it took all that energy and put it into entrepreneurial endeavors to, to nature and hiking, but I didn't really sit with like, man, that was, that was hard. I had to say goodbye to my best friend, alcohol. It sucked, but there are components of that old self that that's, it's just that it's the old self and we grow. We're never, we're never stagnant. Things are always changing, even at the molecular level. Um, and talk to us, what's, what are you looking forward to in life? And now that alcohol isn't present. I'm graduating nurse practitioner school. And actually my specialty because of all that I went through is psychiatric mental health specifically. Wow. Okay. And Zita, you've got a superpower in experience with alcohol there. And I hope you leverage that. I read, this is a, it's hard to get the exact number, but anywhere from 40 to 60 to 70% of alcohol beds have underpinnings to alcohol, especially in the ICU, right? Mm-hmm. And some personal firsthand experience or advice on the bedside of, look, you know, I don't drink, but you can do this too, is going to go so far. Yeah. I mean, how have you seen alcohol in, in the ICU? What role does that yeah, play? And- I think with COVID, we saw an increase in people coming in for alcohol and I work on a cardiac unit. So normally, you know, they go to a different like medical unit. So we saw an increase in, you know, people coming in for alcohol withdrawals, you know, they're 30 years old, some as old as like 80 still struggling with this. And, you know, I try, I don't like to disclose my story too much just because I'm their nurse, Sure. you know, but I just look at them so differently now and just knowing what I went through. And I just try to encourage so much hope, you know, when I'm caring for them, I don't take it as like, you know, another alcoholic. I just, I hate when people say that, but it's just like, they are trying the best they can, you know, they just are struggling. That's all I look at it as. Yeah. You're armed with a powerful tool called empathy. And Mm -hmm. when you have that, it doesn't need to be spoken. You're at the bedside, bedside manner, right? Sometimes that's taught but you have empathy for your patients, then you're going to be more relatable to them. You can treat them better. You can do better at your job. Wow. Zed, I got one more question for you before we hit the rapid fire round. What is a, what is a non-negotiable for you in your life? Um, if I feel somebody's crossing my boundary, it's just, they're gone or I'm gone. Like that's just it. 
if you're over talking me, if you're treating me like shit, like that's nope. And that, and that's something that's, that's flipped in your life right now. Correct. Yeah. Okay. On this journey, you've learned how to put boundaries into place. Yes. Definitely. Gotcha. Yeah. The word no can be a full sentence. <laughs> yeah. Saying no is always hard for me to do as well. All right, Zeta, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 10 to 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes. I didn't look up this one, so <laughs> I don't know. All what right. Question, so. No problem. Because sometimes I just switch them up on the, on the fly. <laughs> What's the one thing you've learned about yourself since quitting drinking? Um, I have learned I'm very assertive when it comes to my needs mentally. Before, like I said, I let people walk over me. Now I know exactly what I need each day, what I need to feel better. Just my needs are more defined now. Okay, Zita, in this sobriety run, what's your best sober moment? Donuts at the wild game? <laughs> Going to Florida and not drinking and having the best time. Yeah, okay. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Um. There's this thing called Celsius Tropical Vibe. It's really good, sparkling. It's like sparkling water. Yeah, okay. Zita, what's the point of life? Um, I believe in God. I think it's to praise him and just have the best time each day possible. All right, what's your favorite 90s band? Green Day, actually. <laughs> okay, all right. And what's your favorite resource? Favorite what? Resource. As far as? Yeah, quitting drinking. This could be that women's meeting that you talked about, podcast, literature. What has been working best for me is Women for Sobriety and the podcast. Okay. Is Women for Sobriety 12-step based? No. And if listeners want to learn more about that, how can they do that? Yeah, so just online, womenforsobriety.com and yeah, just sign up and there's a whole, it's specifically obviously for women and it's just this great community that you can journal every day and just have women support you with your journey. All right, Zita, if you had a pet mountain goat, what would you name it? <laughs> for some reason, I thought donkey is the name. <laughs> all right, yeah, we've all seen Shrek. That's a great name. Even if the donkey's not a donkey. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> or the, the goat's not a donkey. Okay, what's your favorite type of pizza? No, let's scratch that. What's your favorite type of donut? Cinnamon. Cinnamon donut. All right, I'm a maple type of guy right here. All right, Zita, and before we depart, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? Great question. You know, uh, let's go a little further with that. What advice do you have to somebody who feels the same way as, look, go on and you tell their family, go on with your life without me. I'm, I'm done for. I would say don't lose hope. At least for me, I did have hope, even though I did say go on without me. Don't lose hope in that you will get better. You know, see the bright lights, see the future of what you want, see what could possibly be. Have something in mind that you look forward to that you think you can achieve. And I think if you look forward to that, there's a little hope tripling that you can get through. Yeah, I think that's what saved me in 2014 is I kept building my alcohol-free life in my mind mentally. Um, and I lost hope. There were a couple times where I lost hope and it's okay. It's okay to, to hit your knees and, and just let it all out. That happened to me in 2014. I lost hope a couple times, but I kept building it in my mind. I kept seeing the other side, even though I was so far away from it. But I also, I often talk about, you know, don't worry about the, how you're going to get there, focus on the why. And, and what I have seen is the universe will always bend to your vision. Um, and it also flipped for me one, one morning, 
you know, like the 50th day one with, with a crushing hangover. I switched the narrative to, I used to say like, oh, I can do this. I can do this, which great. That's bold. It's, it's, it's a great statement, but I would switch it. Zed, I said, I am doing this. And I didn't mentally make that switch on purpose. It just happened. It's like, I am doing this. This is my 50th day one in a row. And I don't know what exactly day one it was, but it's like, look, I'm getting my ass kicked here, but I am doing this. I'm actively waking up. I'd close my eyes and I'd see it. I'd see myself walking with my dog and just visualize things doing sober. And I, and you're right. It's that little component, a little piece that was still there, but I lost it a couple times. So listeners, if you are feeling completely hopeless, that is okay. I was there. Zeta was there and check us both out right now. I'm having a great time on zoom with Zeta. You having a good time right now? Nope. <laughs> oh, that backfired. <laughs> she just looked at her watch right now. She's like, hey, rapid fire round. It's done. Let's wrap this thing up, Paul. Okay. <laughs> All right. Before we go, Zita, give listeners your own customized, you might need to ditch the booze if line. You might need to ditch the booze if you put alcohol in one of your shampoo or conditioner bottles. To drink it in the shower sure okay yeah that uh that checks out <laughs> zita thank you so much for joining us today i had a great time i can only i can only speak for myself um i did too all right well thank you so much zita you're welcome thank you yes quitting drinking is hard at least it was for me now i've spoken with people on this podcast that it wasn't that hard and i've spoken with others where it was much more difficult of a time than i had some people have to go to multiple treatment centers, right? It's, it's just different for everybody. But the one commonality is you've got to carve a new pathway. Now, if we interject and we actively try to keep the addiction going or make an effort to keep drinking, that's, that's harder than the quitting drinking. Now, I saw a PBS episode the other day on the Mississippi River, and they talked about how 30 or 40 years ago, the river was, was going to take a different path about 100 miles north of New Orleans. And they had to spend billions of dollars or millions of dollars. I might've got that number wrong on maintaining the path. They put dams, diversions, you get the point. And sure, that makes sense. It would be an economic catastrophe for New Orleans and the other cities on that river. But there's a new pathway that's wanting to emerge. And how this happens is with pressure. Now, I also heard this on, on TV a couple of weeks ago that under pressure, rocks turn into diamonds. Now, anything with pressure will evolve. I think that's the fundamental point behind Darwinism, behind a revolution, that with pressure, we change. And I think addiction is one of these ultimate pressures that are placed upon us, mostly on the inside. Now, with that pressure, an idea or a seed I want to plant is you are about to bloom. Now, all flowers bloom at different times. Now, keep in mind, an addiction does serve a purpose. In biology, this is called endowment theory which nothing exists without a purpose in the universe. So listener, you are about to bloom. Just keep it going and keep telling yourself this. And the blooming most likely has already begun. And listeners, we have a special musical submission to take us home. We've got the Aquarials. Recovery elevator, you took the elevator down. You gotta take the stairs back up. You can do this.